you cannot pour out of an empty cup. If you don't put anything in yourself in terms of, of, of self-care, whether and self-care for everybody is different. So that might be a glass of wine. That might be time with your kids. That might be going to pray. That might be going to work out. If you don't pour back into yourself, you will have nothing to pour out to other people. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is my chance to talk with people who are doing extraordinary things in the world because they saw something wrong that needed to be made right, and they gave a damn about it. Howdy, friends. Welcome to episode 15 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. 15. So good to be with you. I am very excited to have my friend Nicholas Gaines on the show today. He is a badass in every way, as you will soon find out. Before we get into our conversation, I want to take a moment to share why there was no podcast episode last week, because there is a let's give a damn moment in that story. So story time It has to do with an accident that happened in my family, but it also involves a family that gave a damn in a very practical but lavishly generous way. So last week, my wife and I were coming back from a West Coast trip. We had flown into Nashville the night before, and we're driving uh, back to meet our kids at the grandparents' house. We were a half hour from arriving. Becky was reading. I was listening to a podcast. She gets a FaceTime. Roman fell. Our son, Roman, who's two, he fell. And he falls 150 times a day, but this time was different. He was holding his leg. He was grabbing it and just crying hysterically, which was uh, out of sorts for him. He was He's a very... Uh, durable, uh, strong uh, little boy, as most little boys are. So we arrive, and right away we said hi to everybody and you know, tried to pick Roman up. He didn't want to get picked up. So we took him to the hospital right away. We turned literally five minutes after pulling in the driveway. We said hi to our two girls, went right back to the hospital. Sure enough, they took x-rays. He had a spiral fracture, a nasty spiral fracture on his femur. The next day was very hard for me and for my wife uh, as parents and me as a father watching my son in such extreme pain. And so the next two days we're in the hospital. Uh, He got a partial body cast all up his left leg, around his waist and up to his chest, also known as a spica cast. And um, I tell you that because that's the reason there was no podcast last week, uh, because that evening, Wednesday evening, was when I was supposed to record the podcast, and then Thursday is uh, editing and production, and then Friday, obviously, the podcast comes out. So that's why uh, there was no podcast. But a beautiful thing came out of this, uh, obviously. So for five weeks, my son is in this cast, which is not a cool thing, but he has adapted super well. But one of our friends, actually, I think guest two, episode two of this podcast, uh, Kate Gazaway, um, the founder of Picture Change, she introduced us to one of her friends who had, a, had the very same thing um, happen to their little daughter. And they live just south of Atlanta, four hours and change away. And so they introduced us over the phone. Uh, through, you know, through a text conversation, we get to know them and they offer to bring us this spica chair. It's a special chair made for children that are in spica casts. It helps them to sit up. They can eat on this like platform. It's a really cool chair. Well, they said they had two of them that were given to them when this happened to their daughter. And so right away, they said, we're driving this up this weekend. 
And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? That's a four and a half hour drive. You have no idea who we are. They insisted. I said, I'll meet you halfway. I'll drive down there and get it. They said, no, we're bringing it to you. You've already got enough on your plate. So they said they were coming Sunday. So, you know, two more days went by, Friday and Saturday. They're on their way Sunday. And they, they show up, four and a half hour drive with two kids. They show up with supper for my family. They show up with a date in a bag, which had um, a bottle of wine, theater candy, and a $25 iTunes gift card so that my wife and I could, um, you know, rent some movies and have a date night. And then they brought games. They brought not games. They brought toys, gifts for my two daughters. They also brought gifts for Roman. They brought extra supplies. And so they drove over 500 miles round trip with two kids. We tried to figure out some accommodations for them. They had already reserved a hotel. And all these gifts, they just, they went above and beyond. For me, that's a true, in every sense of the phrase and the idea, that was a true give a damn moment. This is a true give a damn family. So we are very grateful. My family and I are very grateful for this family, Hannah and Joel Chandler from, I think it's McDalla, Georgia, 30 minutes south of Atlanta who drove up, drove back, just poured tons of gifts and love and help. And they stayed for an hour. Um, it was late in the day, so they had to get their kids to bed. And, but they stayed for an hour to like answer all of our questions and help just ease all of our nerves. And so I just wanted to share that, not only to explain why there was no podcast, but also to share how this tragic accident that happened in our family, which we're still recovering from, and Roman is, you can go you know, look at... Um, my Instagram, if you want to see a picture of all of us together um, and Roman and his cast. But they went above and beyond. They went out of their way for complete strangers. That, my friends, is what it looks like to give a damn in a very practical, but like I said at the beginning, a practical but lavishly generous way. So very grateful for the Chandler family. Okay, on to the show now. I had the privilege to have a beautiful and somewhat heavy conversation with my friend Nicholas Gaines. He's amazing and not just because we bear the same name. He is, however, a beautiful black man with amazing hair, an electric smile, and a just a fantastic personality. I met Nicholas uh, years ago at a diner, Marsha's Silver Spoon to be exact, in Tacoma, Washington, about three or four years ago. We were following each other online. He hit me up, he was gonna be in town. And so we had breakfast together at this, in every sense of the phrase and the idea, greasy spoon restaurant. It was terrible. Uh, but the conversation was amazing. We have kept in touch over the years, cheered each other on in our own endeavors. And when I started this podcast, I knew right away he was one of the people that I wanted to have on. He gives so many dams and loves people so well. I won't tell you exactly what Nicholas does because I want him to explain all of that, but I will tell you that he works for the Department of Defense, working with a very vulnerable and hurting group of people. He is a highly skilled trainer, facilitator, counselor, lecturer, and policy director. Before his current role, which he'll discuss at length, he served as an army officer and chaplain. In that role, he helped soldiers process major events in their lives, and he also helped them in their relationship with God, with themselves, and with others. This next bit, I actually copy and pasted from his website because it was so beautifully stated, and I didn't want to mess it up. Quote, Nicholas wants to amplify the power, might, and resilience of marginalized communities particularly communities of color. While he believes in the strength of the human spirit, Nicholas recognizes 
people of color that work to love themselves, their families, and be their best and highest selves in a world that constantly seeks to demean and belittle their unique expressions of culture, love, and joy. I thought that was really beautiful. And if, if you know Nicholas like I know Nicholas, you would know that's exactly what he does in his professional and in his personal life. I think you're going to love our chat. I know you are, in fact. If you're hurting or know someone who is hurting, by the way, by me stating those two different types of people, I just covered every person listening and every person on the planet. You're either hurting or know someone who is. Then this chat is for you. And if not for you personally, pass it along to the person or people in your life that need to hear it. So without any further ado, here's my chat with the amazing Nicholas Gaines. Nicholas Gaines, welcome to episode 15 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm full, actually. I just ate dinner, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Well, there you go. Just don't fall asleep on us. <laughs> I promise. I'm so, so, so excited to have you on the show. Uh, just for everybody listening, um, Nicholas Gaines is awesome. And we met, uh, what was it, three or four years ago now? Um, uh, in person? Were we met in person? Yeah, we met in person. I, yeah. I think that was 2000. Yeah, that was like four or five years ago, actually. Four or five years ago. Um, we had been following each other online. Uh, you hit me up. And said, let's have breakfast early one Sunday morning. We met at some like super duper greasy spoon. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Like I've just been, I've always admired the work that you do. Um, I think we have, you know, mutual uh, desires for the world, uh, mutual like interests and the things we want to accomplish. And so as I stated in the intro, which you won't hear now, but you'll hear when the podcast comes out, like it's been just incredible to follow your journey and um, just really excited to have you on to share who you are, what you do, and why you do it with the world, because I think what you deal with is very relevant to everybody um, in, one, in one way, shape, or form, whether it's people dealing with these things or people that know people that are dealing with these things. That covers every one of us, you know? There's a lot of hurting people in the world. So, um, sorry to get heavy right off the bat, but um, yeah, so that's how, we, that's how we know each other. And um, uh, you're a brother, I love you, and I'm so excited um, to get into the show today. So, before we get into all the deep and crazy stuff, let's go back to the very, very beginning. You and I have talked quite a bit over the years, but I don't know that we've ever discussed, you know, the beginnings for you, your, your childhood, your family, that situation, significant, uh, impactful situations in your life that formed you. Basically, I'm looking for like, what are the kinds of things that made who you are today? And go back as far as you want. I, I would love to share that with the audience and I'd love to learn it for the first yeah. time. I mean, why don't we get right into it, right? We just started, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go. No, um, I think, so I grew up, um, I grew up with, with, with both of my parents. Um, I grew up in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, not specifically in Minneapolis. I grew up in a suburb of, of, uh, Minneapolis, but, um, I grew up there. And I think the thing that I think that I remember the most about my childhood, and I honestly think that over the past, um, few years, especially in the work that I do, that I really reflect on a lot is, uh, the presence of God, um, the presence of faith in my house, I grew up in a house where faith was the cornerstone. Um, it was the foundation. And, you know, my mom was a pastor. And when I was a kid, like a small child, I remember when my mom became a Christian. So I was about five when she became a Christian. And I started to see the ways, even as a kid, that my mom's life began to change. And I think that she was very cognizant and aware of the calling that she felt on her life 
um, to serve God and his people. And so I spent, I say all that to say that I spent a lot of my time in church. Uh, I grew up, because um, I, was, I was the only child really until I was 13 and my sister came along, but I grew up um, going to church probably about five days a week. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in a denomination called the Church of God in Christ. Uh, it's a Pentecostal denomination. So we were in church, you know, Sunday morning early for Sunday school and then Sunday service and then Sunday evening service. And then on Tuesday we would have, uh, they call it Bible band, which is like Bible study. And then we would have Thursday night service, like a, a weekly service. And then we would have youth service on like Thursday nights as well. And then we'd have choir rehearsal on Saturdays and prayer meeting on, on Wednesday. So I, I grew up, I grew up, I spent most of my childhood in church. And as I continue to get older, um, I think that my mom's calling on her life became more pronounced in terms of, of God's direction for her life. And I, I bring all that up to say that, like, I think that watching my mom sort out and discern her calling, I think was something that was pivotal for me uh, because I saw how over time my mom continued to give her life to the Lord and his service. And I saw how, even as she began to pastor, um, how, you know, she went through Bible school and, and training and things like that. But as she began to pastor, I always remember going to church super early. We're always like kind of the first ones there. And we're always the last one to leave. And we were always there through the week cleaning and, and getting the building ready. But the thing that I remember the most is that my mom was always listening to people. And she was always the person, specifically after church, where women, um, families, you know, men would come up and they would talk to her about kind of what was going on with them. And I remember how she would always reserve space for people. She always reserved space for people. And I think that's something that in the work that I do now, that I do. And I think that is something that is really powerful for me now as an adult to always remember to hold space for people. And I remember that my mom not only did that when we were physically in the church building, but I remember always really, it felt like our phone was ringing at our house and she was always listening to people talk and she was always providing comfort and consolation and always reminding them of, of the groundedness in their faith. So I think that's one thing. And the other thing that I remember uh, from my childhood is uh, my mom used to, you know, she's a pastor, obviously. And so I was obsessed with her preaching. I would always watch her preach. And I think, that, you know, now, I, you know, in the, work, in the work that I do, I travel the world speaking. And obviously we'll talk about that later, but I travel the world speaking and I, you know, I speak in front of audiences of 10, I speak in, audiences, in front of audiences of 5,000, whatever it is. And I think that my interest in speaking really was cultivated by my mom, by watching her preach watching her stand in front of people. And she used to, when I was a kid, she used to take me to the bookstore probably every Saturday. Uh, we would used to go to, in Minnesota, it's called Northwestern Bookstore. I don't even know if it still exists there. But she used to take me to the bookstore every Saturday. And she would be, um, I grew up poor. And so in that, she couldn't afford books every week. She couldn't afford, you know, concordances and dictionaries. And so my mom would prepare her sermons at the bookstore. She would like sit in the corner and like do all of her Bible research at the bookstore and I would just like roam around the bookstore reading stuff. And so I'm six years old reading, you know, about um, atonement and things like that. And um, it was interesting to me. And I think for me, I remember the bookstore kind of feeling like a home um, because we would, we would go there every week and there was this, this inquiry that, that, that my parents fostered. And so I say all that to say that, you know, I, I love watching her speak. And I think that now as an, as an adult with a career that I public speak all the time, I really attribute that interest and the, the sharpening of my skills to my mom. 
Yeah. Do you have any, uh, that, that makes total sense. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a sister. My sister is, um, she's 13 years younger than me and she's, uh, out living her life right now in college. Um, she's going to be I'm trying to think, is this going to be her third year? Uh, this upcoming fall will be her third year of college. So, wow. Yeah. And, uh, you, what about your dad? What did he do and what role did he play in all of this? So I have my my family story is somewhat interesting. Um, I grew up knowing my stepdad. Um, I, I still call him my dad as well. But I grew up uh, knowing my stepdad, and then as I became an adult later, later in life, um, I met my biological dad. And so I grew up with my stepdad, and and his he he um, he was a blue collar worker, and he you know he fixed and fueled airplanes. And the thing that I that I take away from growing up with him is that he had such a strong work ethic. And his intention for our family was to do the best that he could. And so he was, he worked a lot. And so my dad, it was not abnormal for him to work double shifts and he would work. And in the work that he did, he worked with his hands and he worked outside. Uh, He used his body. So he was always laying on the ground and things like that. And so um, he worked, you know, outside when it was 110 degrees and he also worked outside, you know, Minnesota gets really cold. So he worked outside when it was negative 40 below. And I appreciate the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his comfort to make sure that we had. And so I think all the experiences that I remember, you know, as, as a kid kind of growing up, I didn't get to see and or spend time a lot with my with my dad because he was always working because he was always trying to provide. Um, but as I got in high school, our relationship changed and we would like listen to music together. And, you know, the times that we talked, we would talk about, you know, music artists, which I love music. Or sometimes we talk about what's going on in the world. But I think the thing that I hold closest to me was that he was always working and that that, in, that work ethic is something that I admire and something I've taken on to um, as an adult, just to, to always work hard and that like money, the accumulation of things is 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 what you do. Like no one owes you anything, you know, like this isn't, you know, this is, this is yours. And so it was always like, how do you make this, this living? And so he, um, he really, he very much instilled that in me. Sounds like you have, uh, some pretty, you know, killer parents, all things considered, you know, <laughs> of course. you know, great hard, hardworking, uh, making space for people, you know, always, you know, just bring, yeah, just, I, I really love, I, I want to meet your parents someday. Yeah. They sound like really, they sound like really great, uh, really great people. I'm glad you had that sort of an upbringing. Um, and I can definitely, you know, I, I could definitely see a lot of that, you know, in, in what I know of you. That's really cool. That's really cool. I, I think we've, you, you probably know that we lived in Minnesota for four years. I'm sure I told yeah. you that, right? Oh, of course I knew that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, 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 very cold, um, in the winters. What kind of work do you do? I know, I know this, and I'm really excited for you to share the incredible ways that you give so many dams. And so I want you to go in depth as much as you'd like. And I, just for everybody listening, this month, May, uh, which you you know reminded me of earlier today, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. So this is a great month um, to to you know share this podcast with the world. So go go into your work, how how you got into it, what you do, the kinds of things that you deal with. And uh, I'll, you know, might, you know, throw something in here or there, but I'm really excited to hear you uh, talk through it. Of course, of course. I might, I'm going to answer your question slightly backwards. Um, sure, go for so it. So I, 
I got into the work that I'm doing. Actually, I started out um, in ministry. I started out in full-time vocational ministry. Before I even went to undergrad, um, I went to two years of Bible college. Um, and that's something that my parents very much encouraged me to do. Again, growing up with parents as pastors, that was something that they were like, you know, this is the calling on your life and very much affirmed that. And so um, I started out in vocational ministry when I moved away to go to college. I was a, a youth pastor while I was also in college, you know, so I was working at this church 30 hours a week and also in college. And and um, I spent a total of maybe, I spent a total of about six or seven years as a pastor. Um, specifically, initially I started out, you know, in youth, um, middle and high school. And then I went to college ministry. And then I started, um, I became a family life pastor um, because I was just really interested in the family, very interested in how families work and how how to make them whole. And so uh, I spent about seven years as a family life pastor and counseling. Um, I've always enjoyed counseling and talking to people. And that was something that the church, the last two churches that I, I pastored at, that was something that was pegged on me like, well, you can do all the counseling. <laughs> so I did. Um, as I was pastoring and as I, was, as I moved through seminary and things like that, I realized that I loved church. I love people in the church. I loved God and, you know, obviously his people, but I didn't feel like the church was the spot for me to be. Um, I felt like tradi- when I think of church, I thought of traditional ministry and like, I would always be like, but there's so much happening out in the world. And, and so I moved from ministry in church as a, as a pastor, which in some ways, in a lot of ways felt very constrictive for me, um, just because of how we would reach people and, and the ways that we talk to people and the things that they believed. And I moved from that into uh, military chaplaincy. <laughs> so I, I had this kind of burden on my heart for military families. Don't know where it came from because I don't have any immediate family that is in the military. Um, never spent a day in my life in the military, but I started reading blogs for probably two years about service members um, and the, the unique experiences that they would encounter, both serving in garrison, which means, you know, in CONUS or on U.S. soil, or in deployment situations. And I started reading about their wives, and I started reading about how deployments affected their kids. I kind of felt at that moment that that was the kind of the impetus for me to, to really think about switching the ways in which I did ministry. And um, I really felt this calling to be a, to be an army chaplain, <laughs> which is crazy because if anyone knew me before I got into the military, that would be the last place or institution that anybody would see me, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, long story short, I got in touch with the recruiter and um, I started the process. It took about ten months uh, for me to commission as an officer and start working in chaplaincy in the army. As a chaplain in the army, um, basically, your job is you are in charge of the spiritual support of the soldiers. And depending on the size of the command or the unit, um, that could be anywhere from 50 to, you know, up to a thousand soldiers. And so essentially you're pastoring, you're pastoring a large or small flock within the army. As a chaplain, you are really seeing the best and the worst parts of people's lives. So, you know, you're doing weddings and you're doing funerals and births and stuff like that. But the thing as a chaplain is that you are holding space for soldiers Unlike a church situation where, you know, people come to church every Thursday or every Sunday. And I think in a lot of ways in church, we present the self that we think that people need to see. And so you get dressed up, you curl your hair, you wear your tie and you show up at church and this is who I am. And we don't know really what's going on in your life. In the military, it's a little bit different because in the military, you know, um, a lot of the situations I've been in with active duty folks, you spend 
so much time with each other, you become a family. And so I see you in the morning at PT. I see you, you know, working throughout the day. I see you when you get shoot out by your commander. And so you have all these moments in which you don't get to perform for me. You have to be yourself. And that creates a very unique dynamic in ministry because I feel like it creates this, um, this authenticity. It creates a sense of realness. And so a lot of the work of a chaplain is helping soldiers process these major life events, whether that is, um, you know, a crisis of faith, um, whether that is grief or loss, you know, you had a miscarriage or your friend died, working through some sort of a trauma. So working with people who are sexual assault survivors or working with people who, who have had some sort of domestic abuse, working with families through reintegration, which means that when the service member returns home from combat, how do we get the service member to be back to a new normal and reacclimating to life as a dad or mom or sister or brother? A lot of the work that you do as a chaplain is really facilitating or really kind of pastoring people in that relationship of how do I get back to loving myself? How do I get back to um, loving God? And how do I love others? And so the interesting part about military chaplaincy is that it's not just ministering to Christians. And I think that's this huge misnomer that people have that I'm going to go into the military and I'm going to preach to Jesus the message of the cross. Um, I feel like in some ways that's kind of how I went in, you know, very evangelical, like let's get people to know about Jesus. That's not how the military works. <laughs> yeah. Because the military is a government organization that allows space and room for people to practice their religion and faith. And so with that, that means that you are providing spiritual care for every soldier, whether they believe in your God or not. And so we have this thing called perform or provide, which means that I either perform the service for you, you know, I pray with you, I counsel you according to your um, religious tradition or your belief system. Or if you know, you're Muslim and I'm not, I'm going to find someone, another chaplain who is, and facilitate you working with that chaplain. But the goal in the military for spiritual support is that we support all soldiers, whether that is Christians, atheists, humanists, people who worship you know, Hindu or uh, Buddhist you know, gods and things like that. And so it really gave me this appreciation, not just for um, God as we would we would know him, but for the divine, for finding space for people to worship and express and connect to spirituality. So I, st I spent um, six years in military chaplaincy, both working with soldiers, working with families. Um, I spent 18 months, is that a year and a half? 18 months um, in a hospital, at the VA hospital, visiting you know about 40 some folks a day in the hospital. And they, they put me, my assignment was palliative care. So I started in end of life care, <laughs> behavioral health, and oncology or cancer. And to come from, to be young myself, to be, you know, kind of, you know, millennial and to have pastored at very young churches or, or church or pastor at churches where, you know, the oldest person there is 60, but you've got 2000 people who are, you know, under 40 to go from that to the VA. And now I'm providing spiritual care for people who are, you know, my youngest patient, I believe was 26, but I, in the 18 months I was there, that was my youngest. My oldest patient, you know, was 97. And most of my patients are World War II vets, Vietnam vets, you know, and then Desert Storm and so on. Um, that changed me because I used I, I came in kind of walking in like, all right, I'm here to pray with you and, and you know, talk about Jesus. And it slowed me down to realize that these people are in these beds and they've got significant amounts of pain in their bodies, in their minds, in their spirit. I spent a lot of time in end-of-life care, and I would go from one room where I would have somebody who, you know, had overdosed on alcohol and drugs, 
who was maybe a, a, a Vietnam vet. I go to another room or another floor and I've got this person who was 92. They've got cancer. They've got their wife there and their mistress is there or their, their other, their other significant other and their kids are there or the kid pops up that they didn't know existed. And so we would walk into these rooms and you would have to kind of facilitate this conflict <laughs> with a dying person and this, these family members. And so, or I would walk into a room with a, a guy who was 35 who um, I remember he had stage four cancer and he was having all these signs and symptoms and he would go to military doctors and they said there was nothing wrong with him. He just had a stomach ache, and, and he later found out that he had stage four cancer and he died. Goodness and so I, and I, and I, I don't mean to be, be so heavy, but I, no, go, I, yeah. to go from leading worship in a church and thinking of all these innovative strategies to reach the community and to do like urban ministry, which is what I, which I felt called to at the time to go from that to now ministry in a context where we had to visit, you know, six to seven patients per hour. That was the quota that we had to reach. I had to case note all the things that I experienced and all these things in their file. And then I would go home at night after visiting 45 people, you walk into one room, you meet with them, you walk out and then you walk in another. And so I'm walking in and out of people's lives, specifically around pain, trauma, and death. Um, it, it was hard, but in another way, it felt like I felt empowered to do it. And so um, I was doing this work while I was also still in uniform. And so this opportunity came about for me to start teaching army leaders, commanders, first sergeants, chaplains, platoon leaders, suicide intervention. And I got this call to, hey, would you mind teaching this class? And that then led me to, while I was you know, doing chaplaincy, a chaplain, I spent three years of that time teaching suicide intervention and prevention. And then um, as I was, as I was kind of discerning my next steps in life, I wanted to move away from full-time ministry and move more towards behavioral health. The army sent me to school, which was wonderful. They sent me to school to study veterans behavioral health. And um, I wanted to take that and use it. And so, you know, the army sent me to school to learn behavioral health. The army sent me to school to learn counseling. I wanted to be able to take those skills and move outside of just praying for people, preaching, yeah. providing spiritual care. I, I felt like... Was there a... Was there a? Sorry to interrupt. Was there a uh, a thing that happened, an experience? Of, what was the pivotal moment or was there one when you knew you wanted to move from, you know, what you're calling like full-time ministry, you know, more ministry work to, you know, behavioral health stuff? Was there a moment there or was it kind of a pretty normal transition that was happening in your life? I think, I think it was a myriad of things. I think it was kind of feeling, cause now, you know, I've been in ministry for a while as a, you know, ordained and licensed pastor, all these things. I think that I was evolving as a person in terms of not specifically just leaning on the idea of religion as like, this is it, but also seeing like, if I believe that we're created mind, body, and spirit, I'm only in this part of of the work I'm doing, ministering to the spirit. How can I also minister to the mind and the body? And so I think I was experiencing some personal change in terms of how I viewed my work as a as a as a you know as a chaplain, but also how I also viewed my faith and my journey. It was kind of an awakening of like there's more to this than than what I see in front of me. And so I wanted to explore that. And a part of exploring that was having to get out of that environment where all I was doing was preaching and praying for people and counseling and move towards like, what is, 
what if I tried like yoga? And what if I tried, you know, all these things that in some ways in Christianity were demonized or that just people didn't know about and spoke ill against? What if I started thinking about what these would look like in practice too? Hmm. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So um, when I interrupted you, you were you were talking about that transition to now doing more like suicide prevention and intervention. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had taught these classes and got to travel the world again, teaching and, and, and training people how to do this work. And, um, as I was making the transition out of chaplaincy, I was trying to think like, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) Because I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, when you have this type of experience professionally, it's hard to go back into like the civilian sector and just be like, all right, I'm going to be a pastor now. Like after I've spent all this time with soldiers and dealing with trauma and combat stress and all this stuff to go back and be like, I'm going to just now sit at a church in an office. Like it, 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 it doesn't work. For me, it didn't at least. And so an opportunity um, had came for me to run this behavioral health program for the Army, for the Army Reserve. And um, so I, you know, did the interview thing and, you know, and I took it. Uh, the, 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 the position became open and, and I took it, um, which leads me to the question you asked of what, what do I do? Um, the Suicide Prevention Program Director. So I run, I'm in charge of um, the education. So um, education, training crisis management, policy development, and counseling. Those are all the things that I do for about so, for soldiers in the Army Reserve that are hmm. in about 29 states. Um, my job is with soldiers, their families, so whatever we, we consider family to be, and government civilians, so the people who support the soldiers Monday through Friday in the office, I, I, I support them as well. What is a, what is a normal... Uh... I don't know if there is such a thing in your line of work, but what does a normal like uh, what does a normal week look like? Because I mean, I've texted you before. I think I was texting you the other day, in fact, and you said like you just started listing off the things that you had dealt with that day, and I just felt like it was just so heavy. Um, so, what does a normal like week look like for you um, in terms of like public speaking, and then like one on ones and different the different situations you run into? Yeah. So it, no day is the same, obviously. So I have normal office hours where, you know, I go to work from, you know, 7.30 to 4 or something like that when I'm in office. So my office is is um, in Utah. And so when I'm not on the road, I go into work. When I'm working, I'm working on the policy development. So I'm writing, I write like, hey, if someone is, has thoughts of suicide, these are the ways in which the Army will, will respond to them. And I go from the top level to the bottom levels. And this is what you will do. This is how you will do it. This is what you will say. These are the talking points that you will use. Um, so I'm writing policy um, that is used for both my command and I also write policy that's used for the Army at large. Okay. Um, I go to a lot of meetings where we're kind of doing strategic planning around what is it going to look like to implement the various policies that we write, that I write. I write curriculum. So I write trainings that we use for soldiers, their families, civilians. So I write like how, you know, it's always trying to think of what are ways to be, to be creative. What are ways to present the same material that can really be sad and really emotionally triggering and traumatizing. What are ways that we can present this, that is going to be innovative, that is going to keep people interested and feel some sort of investment in what we're doing. So I write curriculum. I carry a 24 seven crisis phone with me. It's not one that I have on my own. It's one that I, that I got when I took my job. And so at any time in there, if a soldier a family member or a civilian has thoughts of suicide. So they actively are like, I want to end my life. Or if they're in some sort of a crisis and that crisis is making them have suicidal feelings, I'm on call. And so in a week, I can talk to, you know, maybe 15 different people 
in that one week doing an intervention where it's like, I want to kill myself. And so it's like listening to their pain and kind of trying to find some reasons for them to live and things like that. That happens all the time. Like Friday, I remember Friday, um, I did, I had one crisis to manage, one intervention, and that was before noon. And then I kind of went on with my day. And then at 1135, I got a call. And I was on the phone with that soldier for about 47 minutes. And so it's this weird ebb and flow where like I'm kind of in the mindset of doing something and then you kind of are solving a crisis. Um, I also, you know, in the course of a week, if there is a completed suicide, so if the soldier uh, takes their life, I may be in touch with that unit and talking to the commander and doing some some counseling with the commander of like, this is how you work through this. And these are the things that you're going to do for these soldiers. Um, I'm planning, we call them postvention. So after a death events where I go out and I perform, you know, I do counseling and I educate the soldiers on the different resources available to them. And then I make myself available for like one-on-one counseling with soldiers who are experiencing trauma or grief or, you know, sometimes soldiers are triggered by another soldier's suicide. And then, so I'm talking through their suicidal feelings. So it's, it's that mix. And then I might spend a few days also on the road running suicide intervention workshops where I go somewhere to usually an army reserve base I usually train about 30 people at a time and I train them in the step-by-step of how do you intervene when someone wants to kill themselves. Um, So that's my week. Okay, we are taking a quick break from my conversation with Nicholas Gaines to give you an update from one of our previous guests. Actually, the last guest, Melissa Orozco from ULUPR, Vancouver, New York City. They have been working on a great project that we wanted to share during the interview, but it wasn't quite public. And so she's on the line right now. She's going to give you a quick update and a really great resource for all of you that have social entrepreneurship, blood and ideas in you, things that you want to execute on. She has a great resource at the end. So pay attention. Here's Melissa. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so Red Bull Emma Pico. So Emma Pico means wings in Zulu, and since Red Bull's mission is to give wings to people and ideas, they are um, they're also doing it in the sector of social enterprise, which is really cool. Um, they've been doing it in music and entertainment for as long as we can all remember. Uh, they went into the cultural communities a while back with the Red Bull um, Music Academy, and for the past few years they've been doing the Red Bull Emma Pico Academy, and it's coming to the U.S. for the first time this year. Um, We just closed applications, so we'll be hosting 16 social entrepreneurs in Baltimore for for the first Red Bull Emma Pico Academy. It'll be 10 days of mentoring, but for anybody who wasn't able to get in on that spot, Um, or apply in time, there is just Red Bull Emma Pico, which is a platform any social entrepreneur can go and upload uh, their projects, get tools and resources, and just learn from other social entrepreneurs. It's really cool. Thanks, Melissa, for that update. So for all of you listening that have uh, social entrepreneurship ideas, uh, dreams, go take advantage of that resource. You can find it at mpico.redbull.com. Once again, that's A-M-A-P-H-I-K-O. RedBull.com. Use that resource. It's a great one. Now back to the show. Okay, why do you do the work that you do? And here's why I'm asking that. I think it's probably obvious why I'm asking that. But 
this seems not doesn't seem that this is really heavy stuff you know you're uh, going back a few minutes to the whole hospital thing i don't do well in hospitals i was just in a hospital last week with my son he fractured his femur he's two years old and first of all, I cried, you know, like a hundred times that day. My my son's in pain. <laughs> right. Like I just those those places like like just freak me the hell out, you know. And w- while my son is getting you know worked on, all of a sudden, right outside his room, it was the worst moment of the whole twenty four or 30, 36 hours. There was this like this alarm started going off, and it said it said stroke alert, stroke alert, stroke. So at this moment that my son, like you know, just a few doors down somebody is having a stroke um, and I just broke down. I just started like weeping and my, you know, my wife's like hugging me or whatever. So, you know, you're talking about the whole hospital thing, like that, that stuff just like, you know, drives me a little crazy. And then the whole suicide thing, um, you know, just all, all the stuff you're doing, whether it's the, the, the workshops and talking, you know, talking with people about it, instructing them, th- you know, how to, how to help people, how to, you know, love people, care for people, how to deal with these situations. A couple months ago, I had a, very close friend of mine revealed to me that they had had, they were having thoughts of suicide and it just, it just wrecked me. Like somebody very close to me and I had no idea. It was one of those people that like, well, you know, they're, they're not always like super cheery, but I never thought they would be thinking about, they have an amazing life. Right. And so this, that, that mindset of wanting to take your life, this is just really heavy stuff, dude. And you know that. And so my question is, you know, you obviously give, you know, so many dams um, that's very apparent as you've been telling your story, but but why? Like, what is it inside of you? What drives you to continue this work and really to be able to give it your all day in and day out, knowing that like, even in the middle of this interview right now, this conversation we're having, you can get a phone call on that crisis phone and we'd have to, we'd have to take a little break, right, you know? Right, yeah. So what's going on there? Hmm. I think, I think in my experience, people have always just like opened up to me. Like, you know, I people always have just kind of shared, shared a lot with me, whether I've asked for them to do it or not. And so I want to be a safe space for people. And I really feel it as a calling or just as, as a, as a a work to do, to be able to help folks face their pain and heal. I think that, and I saw this a lot as past, as a pastor and even in, in, in military as, you know, working in chaplaincy that, we as human beings walk through our life and we wear so many masks and identities, you know, whether it's father, whether that's pastor, whether that's brother, whether that's student, you know, community service member, you know, business owner, whatever the, the, the identity that you wear, you know, model, mom, whatever it is. And we forget that underneath all those identities that we have, even, you know, in terms of our socioeconomic status and our race and our sexual orientation and gender identities, under all of those, we're human beings. And I think that every human being has this desire um, to be seen, to be heard fully, and to be loved deeply. And I think that because of that, I see it as an honor, an incredible honor, to be able to sit with someone and help them deconstruct those masks that they're wearing and really be able to say, here, here's my hand, hand me that. You don't, you don't, you don't have to wear this, (laughs) take this off and let's talk. And so that's something that I enjoy doing with people is to be able to say, okay, like I get it. You know, I've, I've have colonels who are, you know, getting ready to retire after 30 years of military service in my office talking about wanting to kill themselves. And it's like, they have all of this bearing, you know, I, I I counsel a field grade officer today (laughs) who was thinking about suicide and they have all these presuppositions of who they're supposed to be. 
And I don't think that that's just specific to military. I think we in life have that. Like, you're so successful and you have this family ahead of you and you have a great job and you're smart and you're pretty or whatever it is. And like, that doesn't mean that we aren't able to be in pain. That doesn't diminish the idea that life sometimes sucks and we need to get it out. And so I enjoy being able to walk with people in their journey and help them heal their, you know, and, and hear their story. And I, it's an incredible honor to serve as a conduit to that healing. What do you do to make sure you're in a place where you can do all of that? Like, what do you do to uh, kind of recharge, yeah, to make sure you're in both a physical, mental, uh, spiritual, emotional place where you can do that? Are there any things that you do um, to make sure you're like that? Or does it, or did, are you just naturally like ready to rock and roll when these situations come? <laughs> I think, I think um, it's, it's a mix. I think in some ways when I really sit and think like, I, you know, you and I have talked before and I'm like, oh, this happened today and this happened. And to me, it's like, this is, this is like what I do. So it's never like a, you know, but in the same regard, I also know that in this type of work, you are giving of your full self to someone else, even if it's just sharing space. So for me, I actually, I enjoy, like people are great, but I really enjoy being alone. <laughs> I speak a lot. I travel a lot. I'm always on. And so the one thing that I enjoy the most is being able to be alone and be off in my own thoughts, in my own head. So I think I live in my head a lot and I enjoy just being alone. Um, my family is incredible. I enjoy being able to spend time with them, just like laughing and, and traveling and going to concerts and trying new food. I very much enjoy music. Music is is healing for me. And so I listen to music all the time, all day. No matter where I'm at, you will always have me listen to some music. And food. Food is food is love. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm always like, let me find some banana pudding and some fried chicken. Like, let me find some pancakes somewhere. Let me, you know, um, and I work out, you know, I work out a lot. And I think that really helps me release, really stress. Do you know what, um, just out of curiosity, do you know what your Myers-Briggs is? Gosh, I do. Um, shoot. I have it it's, saved. It's, it, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. If, it's fine if you don't know. know. I was just, you do? I do. Hold on. Hold on. I totally know what it is. I'm an ENFJ, which is like uh-huh. high. The, it's it's yes. high, high people, high empathy. Not in the, like, again, the, w- 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 the reason I wanted to talk with you is just the, you, you get to deal with a whole different set of people that I, it would just, that, that, that would really like. I don't know. That's like really heavy stuff. And I'm, and I know you know that and, and I could do it if, if, if that's what was required of me, but I just love, I love, you know, a lot of things you're saying just resonate with me about your, your mom and how she was there. Like, I love what recharges me personally is being with people. You know, my wife needs, she's, she, she, she can hang out with the best of them. And she's, she's a, she's great to hang out with. Everybody loves my wife, but she needs to recharge, right? She needs to go, get, get, get in, get into a book. She'll read a 400 page book and like three, she just, that's her, that's her stuff where me, I get to recharge with people. Anyway, do did you pull it up yet? I totally pulled it up. So I am a, I N hold on. I N F J. Yep. I was, I was, I was going to say that you are identical to me except for the, the E and the I. So you're yeah. an introvert. I'm an extrovert. And I um, used to be an extrovert, but I also think a lot of the experiences I have professionally have just been like, I need to be alone now. And like, I now, when I do an event or when I speak in front of a large group, like I will do the whole, like all the talking after as I have like a 15 minute grace period. When that's done, I have to be alone. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, let's spend a few minutes. Uh, so the people listening to this podcast, as you probably know, are they're people that really and genuinely want to change the world. They want to find 
the thing or the things that they can grab onto and give a damn about that that person, that place, that thing. Um, and I know this because I talk with them all week long, direct messages, um, texts, emails. Uh, it's a really great group of people that I love that it's growing and there's really cool stuff happening. So for the people listening to this podcast, based on your experiences, how would you suggest to, again, so these are not pr- trained professionals. I'm not a trained professional when it comes to suicide intervention. So regular people that come in contact or maybe it's them, right? But regular people that come in contact with people struggling with suicide, self-harm, these sorts of things, what would you suggest we do? Like, um, I, I, I foresee that happening more as I get out more in the public eye and I've, it's, it, it is happening more. Just people that are really down and there are lots of things happening in their lives. So specifically with the things you've addressed, suicide, self-harm, those sorts of things, what would you uh, recommend to those listening to just some kind of first steps they can take in helping out, loving, being there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say number one is people sometimes feel ill-equipped to listen, right? They're like, well, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a pastor. That's not my training. Kind of like you said. And I think the biggest part of this is that you just have to be present. You have to be willing to be present. When a person's sharing their pain with you, when a person is saying like, I want to kill myself, or they might, you know, a lot of people don't say it in that way. They kind of say, I'm tired, or I just don't want to be here. Or, I, I just want it all to end. They're talking to you because they trust you. Therefore, because they trust you, let them have that moment. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to, to do anything. All you have to do is honor it and be present with them. Um, I think the way that we show up for people and be present in their life is really just asking you know, three questions. Are you okay? Would you like to talk about it? And can we go get help? I think asking someone, are they okay? It's kind of those moments where you realize or the person realizes that like you have noticed a marked, note, a marked change in their behavior and you're just inquiring about it. And asking them if they want to talk about it is really giving them the floor where they don't feel like they have to explain anything, but giving them the floor to be able to talk through their stuff as much as as shallow or as deep as they want. And the can we get help is the, you know, you partnering with them and saying, I'm here, here's my hand, let's let's go do this. Again, you don't have to be the fixer, you don't have to be the, the counselor, but I, I look at it kind of as like a, you know, if my kids are playing at the at the at the park down the street. And someone falls out and has a heart attack. I am not a cardiologist. <laughs> I'm training what I do and I'm really good at it, but that is not what I'm good at. But what they do need is a first aid responder to call 911. And they need somebody to do those, you know, those chest, those chest compressions. That's what it is when someone says that they are thinking about killing themselves. All your job at that moment is to do is to get that person to safety and then let the people who are professionals like myself and others take it from there. That makes sense. Repeat those uh, three questions real quickly again, just for... Um, I want that. Dr- I want that drilled in my head. Yeah. Are you okay? Would you like to talk about it? And can we go get help? That's great. Great. Super helpful. Based on your experience, um, could you give those listening two to three ways that they could start giving a damn today? Not necessarily about the things that you give a damn about, um, because all of us are, you know, are in the process of figuring out those things for ourselves. But uh, just based on the, the ways that you've grown up, the career that you've had so far, your family, your friends, the people around you, and the ways that you give a damn, what are some practical – I ask this of everybody because I th- it, every, everyone gives two or three completely different things based on you know, their lives and their experiences. So yeah, what are two or three ways people could uh, begin giving a damn today? 
No more excuses. No, no more being in your head and thinking, oh, I can't do that. I can't do this. Um, just some practical stuff. And if if it's one or four, it doesn't matter. Just just a couple things. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to focus not so much on the society around us because I think that you know, I think that you have other great episodes where people are talking about the ways that they can give a damn about the society. I want us to focus on how do we give a damn about ourselves? Because the reality is, is that we are afraid to appear less than perfect. We have this thing where we feel like we have to hold ourselves together all the time and be on all the time. And that needing to be perfect can really isolate us and really take us to dangerous places. And so I I would say that we really have to, as human beings, especially in an age of social media, especially having millennials listen, we live in an age where people, where we allow people's filtered images to kind of permeate our thoughts and cause us to be insecure about our lives and to cause us to, you know, you look at someone else's photo and you're like, I wish I was doing that with my life. And we take all this energy and we focus it on how do we get that person's life and we lose sight of what we are called and created as individuals to do. And so you know, the first step about giving a damn is just not allowing people's filtered images to take over and really, you know, you let people's filtered images take over while you walk through your life unfiltered. And so really focusing on like, what am I called to and why am I here and walking towards that? I think the other thing is, is just that we have to love ourselves without our title, without the makeup, without the competition, the fancy shoes, trying to be perfect, our theology, our spiritual practices, we have to allow ourselves space to let those things go and in some ways almost deconstruct them, kind of let them fall apart to start really, because I think, you know, I spent a lot of my life with parents who were in ministry, as I said before, I spent a lot of my time in Bible school, a lot of my time in seminary, then I went right into my career and working. And I think I performed my faith a lot. I think I performed as a human being a lot of what people's expectations of me should be. And I still had no idea of who I was. And so I think the most powerful thing that we can do as human beings is start to deconstruct all those belief systems and all those things that hold us, those boxes, and really start to break out of those and say, what is germane to me? What's important to me? What truth is mine? What am I called to? Why am I here? What makes me happy? What gives me joy? And move towards that. Super helpful. I know, uh, yeah, if anybody begins to follow what you're doing online, and they'll, they'll, they'll see lots of... Uh, you know, hashtag self-care and, you know, just because it, 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 it is important if we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're, I forget who, who said this, but I think about it every single day. I should probably remember who said it first anyway. A lot, a lot of people have their own versions, but we go through life comparing our blooper reel to everyone yeah. else's highlight reel, right? Yeah, I think Steven Spurdick said that. I, I believe he said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and there's several different versions, but the the, 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 truth, the truth is there that we just go around, whether it's on Instagram or the person standing next to us, we compare all how great they are and how great they're doing with all the worst of us because we know ourselves so intimately. We know ourselves the best, you know, out of all the other humans. And that that hinders us from being a better friend, uh, husband, wife, father, mother, whatever our career is, it hinders us from doing that because we don't realize how much that's burdening us, how much that's like dragging us down. It's exhausting to be what you're not. (laughs) And it's also exhausting to be what you're not equipped to be. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So like running around trying to really manage these facades and, you know, the point I'm making is to let that go. Let it go. Yeah. 
Yeah. There you go. That's a much different, uh, you know, <laughs> couple of things than most people have given, but they're spot on. And we can't do any of those other things, right? We can't do those things well if we have not first, you know, taken care of ourselves, we're, we're, you know, where we feel we're in a good place that we can start pouring ourselves out for other people, right? You wouldn't be able to do the work that you do well if you didn't take that time, and I know you do, to take that time to really um, take care of yourself, to uh, love yourself, to really go deep and figure out what those things are that need to be revealed, taken care of, worked on. You wouldn't be able to do these things because these are super heavy things. Someone that's always into themselves and into uh, trying to compare themselves to others would not be able to do the work that you're doing. They just just wouldn't. Right. Well, I think, you know, to your point, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, I want the listeners to really think about the idea that you cannot pour out of an empty cup. If you don't put anything in yourself in terms of, of, of self-care, whether and self-care for everybody is different. So that might be a glass of wine. That might be time with your kids. That might be going to pray. That might be going to work out. If you don't pour back into yourself, you will have nothing to pour out to other people and you also have nothing to drink for yourself. And so it's important that you remember to, to pour into your cup so that people can drink from that cup but you can also pour out from that cup as well. But you you have to because if you don't, people are getting the fumes. They're getting they're getting the the autopilot. They're getting the fake facade of you. And and in order to you know to love people well, you got to be able to be present. And a part of that is is being able to bring your whole self to the party. Love that. This is kind of out of left field, and we're going to begin to wrap up here. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on so Jordan Edwards, fifteen years old. 3.5 GPA, great kid, shot in the head uh, with a rifle by an officer a couple days ago outside of Dallas, Texas. How would you, someone who, you know, lives that world, you know, has to process through that, you know, as a as a black man in America, and you've thought through these things, you've had very, you know, again, I followed you for years, you've had very intelligent, great conversations and thoughts on these issues. Help us, those listening that are probably also have seen that news in the last couple of days. It keeps happening, dude. And like, it's, it, you know, I'm I'm a different kind of minority. I'm Guatemalan, uh, you know, but it, I've felt that in very, very small ways in my life. I can't imagine the kinds of things that you and others have to deal with. And these things keep happening and it's really hard and really hurtful. And I, I've... It's been a very sad couple days and it just keeps happening and you hope that it doesn't. And then, you know, weeks will go by and nothing, nothing, nothing. And then boom, it happens again. Um, so how are you feeling and kind of briefly, how, how are you processing and what would you recommend we do? So I wrote about it this morning. Um, there's an ode to Jordan Edwards uh, on my on my blog. And so if folks are interested in kind of hearing me think through that a little bit more that that's something they can go read but i um uh, you know i think the thing that so how am i processing it so um when it happened and it became news i saw it i saw the headline and i couldn't engage now my lack of engagement around it is because of the experiences that i've had with police officers and i've had lots of hostile experiences with police officers from the time I was 19 all the way up until recently in different ways. And so it was triggering for me. And so I wasn't ready for that truth. It wasn't until last night that I actually started reading the reports. And I knew being a Black person in America and in this 
um, post-Obama kind of age and this current Trump age, I knew that the police report wasn't correct. Like, I knew that. And I knew that the story was going to change. And I knew that they were going to indict Jordan Edwards on his death and blame him for his own death. I knew that was going to happen before today happened. And I thought of two things. I thought, of course, of all my experiences with police officers, but I also thought of my sons. I have two sons, three and seven. And I thought of the world in which they live in now and the world in which they will live, specifically being biracial, but also, you know, the world seeing and perceiving them as black growing up in Utah or wherever, you know, wherever we're going to be and the criminality that comes with being a black person. And, um, I think what makes me angry about this is that Jordan Edwards is dead and the man who shot him lied on TV, lied to authorities. And he is still, he is still walking around, not handcuffed, not in jail. And he is being protected and I think what, what hurts my heart is the fact that Jordan's parents will have to pay taxes to a government that killed their child. They will have to say yes, sir, to a police officer that pulls them over so that they don't die themselves. And they will have to listen to racist rhetoric from the people that were nominated to lead this country that further incite the hatred that is happening. I can't think of the amount of years that are now cut off of the life of Jordan Edwards's mom and dad because their son died in this way that they literally blew his brains out of his head and he is now blamed for that. That's how it hits me. So uh, it, it hits me in a weird place because I think of my sons, but I also think of all the moments that I could have died and I'm still here. I think something that makes me angry around this is that even if Jordan had a 0.2 GPA, even if he was disrespectful and even if he had a criminal record, he did not deserve to die by the hands of people who swore to protect and serve him. He didn't deserve to die. So I hate in a lot of the ways in which these conversations happen around black people dying in which we have to build them up to be these amazing people. No, that no matter what, what happened, he was not worthy to be killed by agents of the state. So I guess you asked, how do we, what do we do? Um, yeah. What do, what do we do? Do we, do we become keyboard warriors and, you know, yeah. What do we do? I, 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 it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I think the biggest thing that we do is that we first sit with what the pain is, right? So if it makes you uncomfortable, I, I want you to sit with why. Why does this death make you uncomfortable? If it makes you numb, it's again, why do I not feel anything with this? I was, I was um, a, few, a few months ago, Philando Castell in Minneapolis died and I was at a wedding. And I was in this wedding and, um, and you know, it's a wedding, it's a joyous occasion. But I looked around and I realized that most of these people didn't even know who that was. And so, and that hurt me because I'm like, I am one gunshot away from being a hashtag myself. And so I just want people to sit with the feelings that they have, but also, you know, being a keyboard warrior doesn't do much to change the systems and the policies of these people that continue to perpetuate these, this power. So before you even look at systems changing, I just think that people have to listen. Listen to the people that you're being a keyboard warrior with on Facebook don't silence them. Don't talk over them. When a black person says to you, this is how this racism hurts me, I don't expect you to do anything else but listen and try to figure out the ways in which you've contributed to that as well. But it, you know, don't type over and say, well, this is what it is, or you're just being this way. Like that, That's not fair. It's not fair. So let's listen. Let's just listen. And then from that, that, that guilt that we feel or whatever, that has to then propel you to action. But the first part of that is listen. Sure. Yeah. I love that. It's very, very wise, my friend. Um, 
Before we, I've got two more questions left. Uh, before I ask those questions, I just want to take a brief moment to honor you, brother. Uh, first, I'm honored to know you, um, and I just want to honor you for the kind, the the kind of life that you have chosen to lead, one that doesn't shy away from hard things, but actually does the complete opposite. You run run into them, you embrace them, and you're there literally with a crisis phone, you know, all day. And I, and you know, someone could say, well, he's getting, this is his career. He's getting paid to do that. Yeah, I totally get that. But no, like this is a hard, this is a very hard thing that you've chosen to do. Um, you could be doing a ton of other things. You could be pursuing a career in public speaking where you get to inspire people, you know, this kind of motivational speaker thing. But instead you're training 30 people at a time how to help people not kill themselves. And you are, you know, on this crisis phone 15 times a week, three times on Friday alone. And so I just want, I want to um, honor the, the life that you've chosen to lead. Um, I want to, even though your family is, you know, not on this call, I want to honor them for, you know, walking alongside you with this, which I'm sure is not, you know, super easy all the time. And so, you know, just, I want you to feel that. I want you to receive that and keep going, man. Um, I'm excited to know you and be able to observe from the sidelines and, you know, hope that we'll find more ways to collaborate, more ways that we can help each other in what we do. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. This question is a hypothetical, but one of my favorites to ask. Okay. Um, when you die, which hopefully <laughs> won't be for many, many years, because you are, you are balancing your, your fried chicken and nanner pudding yes. with lots of working out. But when you die, which hopefully won't be for many years, I'm going to give you, remember, this is hypothetical. I'm going to give you a eulogy. All of your, your families there, your friends, hundreds and hundreds of people that you've helped, um, they're all there. Uh, what do you hope that I'll say in front of all these people? In three or four sentences, Holy what do God. you want your Oof, that's legacy, a question. That is a question. legacy to be? It is. <laughs> it is. That's, that, that is the Oprah question, and you just asked it. My goodness. It's, um, it's the question. Wow. Um, that I loved, that when people were with me, they felt and experienced love from me for themselves, that I cared about people and wanted them to see them find their highest self, whatever that was for them, that, that people felt like I was there with them for that. And I would probably say the most important thing, well, two things. One is that I always advocated for the dignity, the equality and worth of all human beings. And I think most importantly is that I, that I love, love my family. Oh, that was hard. Goodness. That That's was a hell of a legacy. <laughs> that was a hard question. <laughs> yeah. I like to, I like to, I like it. Kind of finish off. Finish I like off it. The heart. I mean, dude, that's the, that's what it all comes down to is, you know, I've, I've said before, I'll say it again. Like I want to live the kind of life that lands me in the history books, not because I need to be like famous or be in a history book, but it means I lived a life that gave so many dams that I was, I was remembered by those things. Right. And so I think it's really, we, we have to be thinking, it, you, we have to think about the end, you know, the, the end goal, right? What do we, so I just asked you that question. What do we want the kind of those three or four sentences and then work back from there? Okay. If that's what I want people to say, what do I need to do today to get myself there? Right. And so I think it's the question that 
not only I should ask you, but everyone should be asking themselves or each other, right? Um, so thanks for answering. That's a incredible legacy if if you accomplish that, which I trust you will. Um, very last question is where can people, if they're interested in just following your journey, following what you're doing, um, you know, as you as you grow and learn and be, continue to help other people, where can they follow along? Um, the best place to follow me, um, I have a blog. Um, it's nicholasgains.com. And that is where I write. I write a lot about, you know, mental health stuff. Um, I reflect a lot on the culture. I write a lot about fatherhood um, and things like that. So that is the best place to find me. Um, and that's N-I-C-K-O-L-A-S gains.com, right? Yep. So N-I-C-K-O-L-A-S-G-A-I-N-E-S.com. Yes. Great. Great. Anywhere else or just there is the best place? Um, that's probably the best place. I mean, I do a lot of speaking and, and stuff like that. And so I'm trying to, um, I, you know, I speak a lot on different podcasts and stuff like that. So you can go there and you can find links to, you know, all the different podcasts that I've been a part of and, and um, you know, just the different things that I'm working on. Um, you can you can definitely find me there. You can also find me on Twitter. Now I must tell you that I have not tweeted in a while, <laughs> um, but I'm on Twitter at um, I am Nick Gaines. And then I'm also on Facebook um, as Nicholas Gaines as well. So all those will be available for folks to, to find me. Great. Well, Nicholas, um, love you, brother. Thank you for joining us today. I'm sure that, you know, people are going to enjoy this heavy, you know, talk, but I think they'll find it super helpful. So thanks for thanks for sharing and thanks for uh, being you. Yeah. Hey, and one more thing. I'm sorry, before we go, I just want to throw out a number because I, I just, if somebody is thinking, if somebody is in crisis, if somebody is thinking about harming themselves, if they're thinking about ending their life, I want you to know that you're not alone, that there is help available for you and that you don't have to do this whole thing by yourself. And so, um, I, I want you to be aware of that. And I want you to, um, know that there is actually a number that you can call that is 24 seven. It's the national suicide prevention lifeline. That number is 1-800-273-8255. And they are available to you to help and to really talk through what's going on. Um, on my website, by the time this airs, there will also be some other links to, you know, to find maybe some low-cost sliding scale counseling and, and different local providers in your area. If you feel like there are some things like, you know, anxiety or depression or, you know, you're just having a rough time and you need to talk to somebody. There's going to be some ways in which you can connect to do that as well. So that's also going to be available on my site. Thanks for adding that in there, man. You know, I mean, you never know who's listening and what they're going through. So I appreciate you uh, adding that in there at the end. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for joining me. Sounds good. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Nicholas Gaines. I had a blast, a beautiful and heavy conversation. I know it may take some of you a little time to process what just happened, so please hit me up on social media with any questions or comments or email me at hello at nicklapara.com. I'd love to chat with you. If you have any energy left in you, please go leave a review on iTunes. It will literally take you one minute and it will help us a ton. Connect with us on social media. We're at Let's Give a Damn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'd love to chat with you there. Find out different ways you can support what we're doing by visiting letsgiveadam.com, and I'd love to personally hang out with you at Nick Lapara on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or, as I stated a few seconds ago, email me at hello at nicklapara.com. That is it for this week. 
I love you all. I'm so, so grateful for your support, attention, and love. And I can't wait to spend more time with you very, very soon. Until next week, bye.